Part ten of Confessions of Two Brothers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Confessions of Two Brothers by John Cooper Powis and Llewellyn Powis. Confessions by John Cooper. Section ten. In regard to my feeling for my friends, I love genius above everything. The appearance of genius, even in a person otherwise intolerable, makes me always tender and considerate. The hesitations and timidities and aberrations of a person of weak will possessed of genius fill me with tactful regard. On the contrary, towards strong-willed persons of vigorous but unimaginative intellect, my attitude is sometimes quite unkind. At the same time I observe as an interesting physiological fact that the society of nervous and ill-constituted people throws me inwardly into a reaction of hard, clear, and even philistine capacity. Below the surface, though I trust I show no sign of this, I become sharp, definite, resolute, aggressive, and practical. Imaginative people, of a nebulous incoherence, tend to throw me by reaction into a tightly strung mood of energetic cleverness. I think I am, as a matter of fact, rather clever than otherwise. Only my susceptibility to sensual obsessions clouds and drugs my cleverness. I am indeed much cleverer than my enemies suppose, though this does not give my pride much satisfaction, for what I admire in my heart is genius and genius alone. I am so clever that, in the intellectual sphere, it is not easy to fool me, whereas I notice that people of genius are constantly being fooled. They are indeed of a pathetic simplicity. I am not simple, though the naive manner in which I pursue my sensations sometimes gives that impression. I am inclined to assert, though it seems an amazing claim to make, that my habitual attitude towards people, even towards the people I love the best, is one of Machiavellian dissimulation. Of course, this may be nothing but a pathetic illusion. It is quite possible that my friends see through me without the slightest difficulty, and that my self-satisfied diplomacy appears to them the most naive childishness. Perhaps it is even a constant joke among them at my expense. I have an inkling that I have discerned already something of this kind, especially in regard to my admiration of their artistic achievements. I have begun to suspect that they have got weary of my perpetual habit of agreement and unqualified assent. This suspicion has led me recently into the application of certain jolts and shocks, the success of which, in exciting my friend's respect, has induced me to question the wisdom of my cunning. There is no doubt I have gone a good deal too far upon this path of universal acquiescence. It has led me into certain very grotesque situations, due indirectly to its annihilation of my friend's respect for me as a formidable fellow who might hit back. I suppose I have cultivated an absurd idea that one's friends respect one and treat one considerately in proportion as one refrains from self-assertion. Nothing could be more untrue. One's friends' respect is secured and sustained precisely in the same manner as is one's enemies that is to say, by the imposition upon them of the formidableness of power. Quite apart from Machiavellian diplomacy, I have, by disposition, 
an extreme reluctance to assert my will against another's will it gives me pleasure to pillory myself to humiliate myself to appear as a clumsy clown a doddering fool an apologetic and characterless nincompoop in the presence of those who are really fond of me from the results of this proclivity upon the minds of my friends i have learned the interesting fact that even in friendship one has to make oneself feared in order to be treated considerately and on equal terms in a sense what i am now saying is unfair to my friends and for this reason when a person shows that he derives a certain perverse pleasure from being roughly used it is difficult to resist the temptation to use him roughly nor is it with me only a matter of pleasure of being thus scolded and criticised in addition to this voluptuous perversity there is present in the depths of my heart a certain malicious delight in leading my critics on so that they may be more and more betrayed and unveiled in the damning quagmire of moral complacency the more unjust these strictures are the further they betray themselves and i am sometimes guilty of even playing up to their false accusations in order that they may arrive at a quite ridiculous pass such a pass for instance as they are brought to when their flagrant overriding strikes the astonished attention of some mutual acquaintance who regards their ardour as pure insanity in the estimation of this third person i appear as a mild harmless and even saintly individual outrageously persecuted it is only when this poor triumph begins to grow tedious that i sarcastically divest myself of my champion and rush back to my purgatorial circle on the wings of fierce repentance it is very interesting to note how in such a word juggler as i am the instincts of the artist should be so thin when i write a book i never write for posterity or for the love of rounding off an exquisite and finished work i write to give a certain malicious prod to my enemies and a certain thrilling caress to my friends i write with quite definite people always before me who will be amused or irritated in a quite definite manner this is the case with my lecturing the general public is never anything to me it simply does not exist the idea of making it cry or laugh the idea of converting it to this or that never enters my head i am either a special pleader in vacuo for some favourite author or i am addressing a quite personal appeal to some single member of the audience i am in fact either making love to some noble antique spirit or i am cajoling and propitiating some evasive modern bearer of enchantments the real physiological history of my art of lecturing would be a strange page of mental revelation i must confess that it often seems to me as though i were swept away out of my own methods and consciousness on the tide of some invisible force the general public as i have said have never any existence for me but sometimes the obsession grows deeper my own personal motives are transcended i forget my occasion my author and my friends and am driven on from utterance to utterance like a man speaking under the influence of some drug or hypnotic suggestion many explanations but none quite satisfactory occur to me as the solution of this phenomenon 
some would say that i have the power under given conditions of drawing upon what certain psychologists call the subliminal consciousness and that the inspiration of this consciousness flowing from a source more general and impersonal than the individual brain of one speaker shows a clairvoyance and an energy beyond what it would be possible for me to reach in any normal moods my own view of the case is not quite this i dislike having recourse to these pseudo-supernatural explanations i fancy that a certain type of speaker possessed of abnormal sensitiveness to mental vibrations can become as it were intoxicated by the minds of his hearers and without being the least conscious of it be mesmerized into certain inspirations of insight quite unattainable by him when alone and in cold blood it may be said that there is not much difference between these explanations there is at least this difference that the latter accounts for these impersonal outbursts without having recourse to any hypothesis of a subliminal soul of the world independent of particular individuals i said earlier in the sketch that my controlling object of life and the chief aim of my activity was pleasure and pleasure alone am i led to announce this out of my hatred of moralists and idealists or is this a real dominant motive with me oh how hard it is to analyse with true exactness one's motives and feelings in these dubious borderlands and if there is such a vein of malicious provocation in what i utter why is it that i should have such vindictive spleen against a set of worthy if not very profound fellow-mortals let me deal with this latter point first i think i get to the root of the matter when i say that my hatred of moralists does not spring from any antinomian fear lest they should interfere with me personally my personal aberrations are not of the kind they could interfere with it is rather they interfere with my interest in life in general and with my appreciation of the universe what in my fatalistic way i like to see and feel and touch are those powerful direct emotions which men and animals and even plants experience when the life-lust pushes them forth between the hot sun and the thick earth to wrestle and play and bask and expand and breathe freely and stretch forth tongues and horns and snouts and hands and tails i like to know that on a saturday afternoon even in the quietest village lads and wenches are making unceremonious love to each other in the shady lanes i like to know that the tramps are stealing chickens children bursting through hedges maidens plotting to run away from their parents farmers laying schemes to outwit landlords labourers conspiring together to plunder farmers and the lord of the manor setting gentlemanly gins to waylay the feet of the clergyman does not even distress me to think of the clergyman himself that pillar of morality snatching a forbidden embrace from his amorous kitchen wench under the kindly privet hedge think my noble theophilus how little a dramatic picture would be left for your ironic soul if these natural outbursts of primitive passion were trimmed and pruned into submission but to return to the matter of pleasure let me suppose that my stark statement that i follow no other end than this be no mere piece of reactionary spleen hurled at the head of the moralists is it a true and exact account of what i am do i really and truly make pleasure my single aim oh the difficulty and ambiguity of these questions it annoys me to admit it 
because of my queer inverted craving for making myself out as frivolous as possible but i suppose the truth is that my pursuit of pleasure is a very indirect and complicated affair i am really blundering absurdly in the confusion of words as a matter of fact i daily sacrifice the pleasure of the senses to the pleasure of the mind i sacrifice the pleasure of direct sensation to the pleasure of power and the pleasure of power to the pleasure of being affectionately loved i sacrifice the pleasure of thrilling excitement to the pleasure of thrilling quietness and the pleasure of voluptuous pursuit to the pleasure of philosophical conversation yes it is only after all in a very qualified sense that i am that intransigent hedonist i should like my moralistic friends to find me but there is something in my claim i do respond more quickly and spontaneously than many to the immediate sensational appeal i live more in the present hour than most people and am more easily swept out of my calculated temper by the lures of the occasion the moment governs me more absorbingly than it seems to govern others and i am more a slave of the immediate attraction of a chance encounter this unbalanced and chaotic following of the will-o'-wisps of accidental beckonings is partly due to the fact that my tired scepticism is always muttering to me in a low plaintive voice and nudging me on to be inconsistent and inconsequent all is equal it keeps repeating all is equal and nothing matters i sometimes wonder if i am regarded by my friends and acquaintances as a reliable person as a person to whom they would turn in an emergency for help and support if not this were a grave blow to my self-esteem i should like to be the kind of person people would regard as absolutely reliable and dependable he is an egoist of course i should like them to say but one can always depend upon him at a pinch will the friends of my heart that i have in one kind and another so sorely abused ever forgive me and have confidence in me again i would have you believe o oh, grievously tried companions that beyond the thick marsh mists of my imperviousness i am constantly hoisting signals and lighting beacon fires i would have you think of me not as some insolent despiser of human affection not as some brazen image of impervious self-contentment but as one who knows only too well that he lacks of spiritual fire of one who can at least visualize the wretched gap in his nature where the soul and its tender attributes ought to be i do not stiffen myself in any obdurate insensitiveness i bow to the fatality that has made me what i am but i worship also at the outer gate of the sanctuary of high devotion the beautiful gods of renunciation and remorse i cannot help referring once more while i am upon this subject to the effect of the present war upon my mind i wonder what would be the impression upon me if my health my youth and my courage lent themselves to such a thing as a few weeks in the trenches my attitude to the war is by no means that of some pacific and philosophical friends of my acquaintance i regard all the young men who go and the middle-aged men still more as genuine heroes i admire them i respect them i feel a certain shame in their presence 
the mere neighbourhood of these terrific struggles has the effect of reducing the personal importance of all my thoughts and feelings to a minimum of interest. It does not so much give me the feeling of the importance of our cause against that of the enemy, as of the trifling and ephemeral nature of all causes, in the presence of these great, catastrophic outbursts of nature's malignity. I have not the remotest sympathy with those sleek and secure philosophers who speak of the benefits of war. I have more intelligence than that. Those who go to war are worthy of all admiration. But what waste! What incredible waste! I think, though it may give my ethical friends more pleasure than I like to give them, that the effect of a few weeks in the trenches would be to make me resolve to spend the rest of my life writing desperately and savagely against time, writing everything I have it in me to write, writing ferociously with hardly a breathing space. I note that even at this safe distance, the effect of these huge naval and military struggles have been to keep me more closely at my work. I have written more laboriously, more carefully in this last year than ever before in my life. What does this mean? I suppose it means that my inherited race conscience, pricked and roused in me by the presence of heroic fortitude in another field, does what it can to free itself from its burden by an increased laboriousness in the sphere of its normal activity. Should I have the moral courage, I wonder, to admire as a philosophical tour de force the attitude of a person absolutely unaffected in his personal conscience by the war? of a person who continued his way as imperviously untouched as the seagulls in the dardanelles or the wild fowl on the flemish marshes whether i should admire such a person or shrink from him in moral astonishment i do not know i only know that for myself i have nothing of this godlike equanimity end of part ten